0: Part 1 of an introductory essay by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. to the Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner. Translated by Anna Crafts Codman, with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. Part 1 of the introductory essay, The Challenge to Naval Supremacy. In a letter to William Pitt of January 6, 1806, relating to his invention of a submersible boat, Robert Fulton wrote prophetically, Now, in this business I will not disguise that I have full confidence in the power which I possess, which is no less than to be the means, should I think proper, of giving to the world a system which must of necessity sweep all military marines from the ocean by giving the weaker maritime powers advantages over the stronger, which the stronger cannot prevent. It is interesting to note that, about a hundred years later, Vice-Admiral Fournier of the French Navy stated before a parliamentary committee of investigation that if france had possessed a sufficient number of submersibles and had disposed them strategically about her coasts and the coasts of her possessions these vessels could have controlled the trade routes of the world he said also that the fighting value of a sufficient number of submersibles would re-establish the balance of power between england and france The history of naval warfare during the last few months has confirmed the opinions of these two authorities, although in a manner which they in no way anticipated. Direct comparison is the usual method by which the human mind estimates values. We would measure the strength of two men by pitting them against each other in physical encounter. In the same way, we are prone to measure the combative effect of weapons by pitting them in conflict against other weapons. But modern warfare is of so complex a nature that direct comparisons fail, and only a careful analysis of military experience determines the potentiality of a weapon and its influence on warfare. Robert Fulton and Admiral Fournier both indicated that they believed in the submersible supremacy in actual encounter with capital ships. The war, so far, has shown that, in action between fleets, the submersible has played a negative part. In the Jutland Bank battle, the submersible, handicapped in speed and eyesight, took as active a part, as a Jack Tar humorously put it, as a turtle might in a catfight. Not even under the extraordinary conditions of the bombardment in the Dardanelles, When the circumstances were as lent themselves strikingly to submarine attack, did these vessels score against the fleet in action. It is easy to understand why the submersible did not take a vital part in any of the major naval actions. In the naval battle of today, we have a number of very high-speed armored craft fighting against one another over ranges extending up to 17,000 yards. There is a constant evolution in the position of the ships, which it is impossible to follow from the low point of vantage of a periscope, for the different formations of ships mean nothing to the submersible commander. He is so placed that his range of vision is extremely limited, and on account of the low speed of his boat while submerged, he can operate over only a very limited area of water, while the other vessels are moving many miles. Then, too, he is extremely vulnerable to the effect of enemy shells and to the ramming of enemy ships. Under these conditions, the submersible commander is, more or less, forced to a policy of lying ambushed to surprise his enemy. It is said that the Lusitania was decoyed into a nest of submersibles. There was but little chance of torpedoing her in any other way, there is also the statement that admiral Beatty passed with his battle cruisers through a flotilla of enemy submersibles without being touched submersibles cannot attack their target in definite formations as do surface vessels and therefore they cannot operate in numbers with the same effectiveness as do the latter they must manoeuvre more or less singly and at random being limited to the torpedo which, when they are submerged, is their sole weapon of attack, they have an uncertain means of striking their armed enemy. The eccentricities of the automobile torpedo are well known, but even eliminating the fact that this missile is unreliable, the important question of accuracy in the estimate of range and speed which the submersible commander has to make before firing the torpedo must be considered. There is usually a large percentage of error in his calculations, unless the submersible is extremely close to its target. Realizing these limitations, the German submersibles are equipped with small torpedoes, which are generally fired at ranges not exceeding 800 to 2,000 yards. The necessity of approaching the target so closely is, of course, a tremendous handicap in the general operation of these boats. In view of these facts, it is not surprising that the submersible should not have been able to sweep the capital ship from the seas, as was predicted by certain experts before the war. Admiral Cyprian Bridge regards the functions of defense by a navy as divisible into three main classifications. He says, The above-mentioned three divisions are called, in common speech, Coast Defense, Colonial Defense, and defense of commerce. From this classification, we are given a hint as to what a sailor means by naval supremacy, freedom of the seas, and other terms so misused that today they mean nothing. Coast defense means defense against invasion. Colonial defense means the safeguarding of distant possessions against enemy forces. The defense of commerce means such supremacy on the seas as will ensure absolute safety of the mercantile marine from enemy commerce destroyers today every great nation is waging a trade war the industrial competition of peace is as keen as the competition of war all the great powers realized years ago that to gain and keep their place in the sun it was necessary for them to construct navies that would ensure to them a certain control of the seas for the protection of their commerce. In this way began the abnormal naval construction in which the powers have vied with one another for supremacy. A simple way of looking at the question, what constitutes the power of a fleet, is to consider the warship as merely a floating gun platform even though this floating platform is the most complex piece of mechanism that was ever contrived by man nevertheless its general function is simple the war has given us enough experience to convince us that the backbone of a navy is after all the heavily armored ship of moderately high speed carrying a very heavy armament this floating gun platform is the structure best fitted to carry large guns into battle and to withstand the terrific punishment of the enemy's fire. The battleship is today, notwithstanding the development of other types, Queen of the Seas. It is therefore not difficult to estimate the relative power of the fleets of different nations. In fact, a purely engineering estimate of this kind can be made, and the respective ranks of the world's naval powers ascertained. Germany has shown all through the war that she thoroughly appreciated the British naval supremacy. Her fleet has ventured little more than sporadic operations from the well-fortified bases behind Heligoland. It was probably the pressure of public opinion and not the expectation that she would achieve anything of military advantage that forced her to send her high-sea fleet into conflict with the British squadrons off Jutland. If one should examine the course of this battle, which has been represented by lines graphically showing the paths of the British and German fleets, one could easily see how the British imposed their will upon the Germans in every turn that these lines make. It reminds one very much of the herding of sheep, for the German fleet was literally herded on May thirty-first, 1916, from 5.36 in the afternoon until 9 o'clock that night. Admiral Von Scher, however, fought the only action which it was possible for him to fight. It was a losing action, and one which he knew from a purely mathematical consideration could not be successful. Through the very definiteness of this understanding of what constitutes naval strength, Great Britain's navy until recently has remained a great potential force, becoming dynamic for only a few hours at Jutland, after which it returned to that mysterious northern base whence it seems to dominate the seas because of the potentiality of these hidden warships thousands of vessels have traversed the ocean freighted with countless tons of cargoes and millions of men for the allies even at that psychological moment when the first hundred thousand were being transported to france Germany refrained from a naval attack which might have turned the whole land campaign in her favor. Today, however, the world is awakening to a new idea of sea power, to a new conception that will have a far-reaching influence on the future development of naval machinery. Sir Cyprian Bridge has stated that one of the functions of a fleet is the defense of commerce. There is no more important function for a fleet than this. A nation may be subjugated by direct invasion, or it may be isolated from the world by blockade. If the blockade be sufficiently long and effectively maintained, it will ruin the nation as effectually as direct invasion. Thus, in the maintenance of a nation's merchant marine on the high seas, its navy exercises one of its most vital functions. There can therefore be no naval supremacy for a nation unless its commerce is assured of immunity from considerable losses through the attack of its enemy. It is idle for us to speak of our naval supremacy over Germany when our navies are failing in one of their most important functions, and when our commerce is suffering such serious losses the persons best qualified to judge are those who are most anxious regarding the present losses in mercantile tonnage while it has been shown that the submersible of today, as a fighting machine is considerably limited and in no sense endangers the existence of the capital ship nevertheless in the new huge submersible it seems that the ideal commerce destroyer has been found. This vessel possesses the necessary cruising radius to operate over sufficient distances to control important routes. It makes a surface speed great enough to run down cargo steamers and has a superstructure to mount guns of considerable power, up to six inch. It embodies almost all the qualifications of the light surface cruiser, with the additional tremendous advantage of being able to hide by submergence. To be completely successful, it must operate in flotillas of hundreds in waters that are opaque to aerial observation. Germany has but a limited number of these submersibles. Otherwise, she would be able to crush the Allied commerce." The ideal submersible commerce raider should be a vessel of such displacement that she could carry a sufficient number of large guns in her superstructure to enable her to fight off the attack of surface destroyers and the smaller patrol craft. She should be capable of cruising over a large radius at high speed, both on the surface and submerged. The super-submersible flotillas should comprise fifty or sixty of these units the attack on the trade routes should be made by a number of flotillas operating at different points at unexpected times. Today, Germany has concentrated her submarine more particularly in the constricted waters about England. It is here that the shipping is most congested, and therefore the harvest is richest, but it is also easier to protect the trade routes over these limited areas of water by patrols, nets, etc., than it would be to protect the entire transoceanic length of the steamship lanes. If the submersible were capable of dealing directly with the destroyer in gunfighting, a tremendous revolution would take place in the tactics of submarine swatting. Then it would be difficult to see how the submersible could be dealt with. Improvement in motive machinery is the vital necessity in the development of the submersible, the next few years may see unexpected strides taken in this direction a great deal will also be accomplished in perfecting methods of receiving sounds under water particularly in relation to ascertaining the direction of these sounds when this is done it will be possible for the submersible commander to tell a great deal about the positions of the vessels above him and thus his artificial ears will compensate to a great extent for his blindness By the addition of a greater number of torpedo tubes, and the improvement of their centralized control in the hand of the commander at the periscope, along lines which we are now developing, it will be possible for the submersible to achieve a greater effectiveness in its torpedo fire. Probably, torpedoes will then be used only against the more important enemy units, such as battleships, cruisers, and the like. To be certain of striking these valuable targets would be worth expending a number of torpedoes in salvo fire. Whether the German U-boat campaign succeeds or not will be largely a question of the number of submersibles that the Central Powers can put into service and to what extent the submersible will be developed during the present war. German submarines have sunk over 7 million 250,000 tons of the Allied shipping. In December 1916, it was stated in the British Parliament that the Merchant Marine of Great Britain had at that time over 20 million tons. Within the first three months of the unrestricted submarine warfare, 1,100,000 tons of British shipping went to the bottom. At this rate, England would lose 25% of her merchant marine per annum. It is for this reason that the attention of the entire world is concentrated upon the vital problem of the submarine menace. On land, the Central Powers are still holding their ground, but there is a continuous increase of the forces of the Allies, which should lead finally to such a preponderance of power As will overwhelm the forces opposed to them. The allied armies, however, depend for their sustenance and supplies upon the freedom of the seas. The trade routes of the world constitute the arteries which feed the muscles of these armies. Germany is endeavoring to cut these arteries by the submarine. Should she even appreciably limit the supplies that cross the ocean to the allies, she will bring about a condition that will make it impossible to augment their armies. In this way, there will inevitably be a deadlock, which, from the German standpoint, would be a highly desirable consummation. End of the first part of the introductory essay by John Hayes Hammond, Jr.,